The Spin-Off Podcast Network. We believe where you live shouldn't decide your destiny and that any place can be a place of learning. So much of modern life has a handy home delivery option. Why not your education? Maybe you'll start your degree in the same space you share with your whānau or from that corner of the spare room that catches the most sun. Start your new what at the place where we're can be anywhere, online or on campus. Massey, New Zealand's leading online university. Apply now at massey.ac.nz. Without foresight or vision, the people will be lost. Kia ora koutou katoa, I'm Leonie Hayden. No mai haere mai, welcome to Conversations That Count, ngā kōrero whaitake, a thought-provoking series brought to you by Massey University and the spin-off. I'll be your guest host for this episode. Our usual host, Stacey Morrison, will be back for our next instalment. I'm joined today by Salah Hart of Hapaite Hauwater and Dr Chris Wilkins of Massey University. Together we'll be talking about the upcoming Cannabis Legalisation and Control Referendum, examining the arguments for and against its passing and taking a deeper look at a few of the implications were the bill to pass. Who stands to benefit? How would we deal with those convicted or imprisoned prior to legalisation? And which external factors should be taken into account by the process? Salah is the CEO of Hapaite Hauwater, a Māori public health policy, advocacy and research organisation. He uru no Ngāti Kuia, Ngāti Apakite Rātoa, Ngāti Koata, Rangitāne ki Wairau, Ngāi Tahu me Ngāti Toia. Salah took up her position in 2019 after more than a decade of working in Māori public health. Chris is the leader of a drug research team at Massey University's Shore and Whāriki Research Centre and has research expertise in drug trends, drug markets, public health and drug policy. Over the past 20 years, he has completed a number of studies of cannabis use in New Zealand. Tēnā kōrua, sila kōrua kō Chris. Kia ora. Kia ora. So we've got a new election date, so we're no longer voting on our two referenda on September 19. It's October 17 now. Chris, can you tell us what we're voting on on October 17 in this referendum? So it's voting on the government's cannabis legalisation and control bill and you can go to the referendum website and take a look at that. And so it's a specific proposal, so we're not voting on just broadly whether to legalise cannabis or not. It's this one or nothing. Um, And what are your thoughts on that? Should we have gone for decriminalisation first? I think... The reason that, that, that they've gone straight for cannabis legalisation is they say, well, you know, if we're going to do this, let's set, in, set up a, a framework and a, a regime that's going to last for a long time. So we're going to you know, take the bull by the horns and really try and develop something that's going to be lasting and it's not a, a halfway measure. Because the downside of just decriminalisation is it's still produced in the black market and all you're doing is um, letting the user get away with a fine or something. And you know, I think that kind of you know makes sense that you've got to you've got to take your window, and and if you're going to do something, you might as well do something that's sustainable. Mm. As a research group, we think it's really important that people can trust the the evidence and um, the analysis that we present, and, and that's essentially what we've been trying to do is present evidence that's available from overseas jurisdictions that have already legalised cannabis, and our knowledge of uh, drug policy in general. 
But given it's a referendum and it's a kind of a competition between yes and no, there's been a lot of over-promising from people who are, uh, are in favour, as well as over-demonisation from people that are negative. Mm. It, it is a really polarised debate and a lot of distrust. So, you know, we and also we recognise that at the end of the day, even though we present all this evidence and, you know, and experience of what's happened overseas, people are going to make their own judgments, you know, based on their own value system about how they see intoxication and risk of dependency and how they think it affects their community. And and we respect that. So, um, you know, reasonable people can disagree on this issue. Um, and at the end of the day, the way, reason we're having a referendum is because, you know, we're leaving it up to people to decide for themselves. Mm. I respect that. That's very fair. So let's get into what is actually in the Cannabis Legalisation and Control Bill. So there are going to be stronger restrictions on cannabis than currently exist for tobacco and alcohol. Do you guys think that the restrictions that are in the bill are fair or reasonable and will contribute to harm reduction? Yeah, sure. So um, what, from what I understand is that we will have a purchase age limit of 20. So I think that's an encouraging first step. What we see with this current legislation as it's laid out is that that's a great uh, protective mechanism to keep it out of the hands of our rangatahi. Notwithstanding, we know that it is already within the hands of our rangatahi. And so I think that when we're talking about change, it might be a slow movement of change. But I think that it is a great way in which we can ensure uh, that there isn't a free-for-all in regards to purchasing if it was to be made legal. Another thing that we are really happy about is that there is some consideration around the marketing because we know that marketing plays a huge role in many of the things that uh, entice our whānau in our communities and uh, what we wouldn't want to see is the ability for um, these products to be you know on big huge billboards such as what we see all around Auckland um, with alcohol we don't want to normalize it but what we want to do is protect those that might be um, requiring health services and, and holder services to help them navigate and journey through that dependence and that addiction. This is a pretty tight regulation framework that's being proposed. It's closer to tobacco than it is alcohol, which is really, really good. And it was good to see that there's commitment to excise tax as well. The only um, kind of caution we'd put forward is that, you know, this is essentially a commercial market. So there is provision for um, partnerships with community like iwi. And there was also provision for -for not-for-profit retail outlets. But it's only provision. So, you know, a lot of this will come out in implementation. So we would like to see only not-for-profit retail outlets and community partnerships, so no big commercial international companies. Because when you've got those companies, they're always going to be pushed back on the controls you've got. Our only other concerns are around potency. We think the potency Mm. cap, 15%, is too high. And we'd also like to see a commitment to a higher excess tax and the allowance for what we call cannabis social clubs. It's a not-for-profit. It means one person grows the cannabis for the whole club and then they just share the cannabis within the group. And the reason we're promoting that is because we think, you know, the real key here is to stop the commercialization and normalization of cannabis use, as you say. And the best way to do that is keep for-profit companies out of out of the picture. Mm. I believe uh, included in the bill... Um, that no organisation will be able to own more than 20% of the overall quota. Is that a low enough threshold, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good provision, but our other concerns behind all this is how realistic some of these kind of proposals are going to be in terms of implementation and 
how are they actually going to be enforced? Um, so the other thing that we have talked about is the limit of 14 grams of purchase every day, which sounds like a good thing and a sensible thing, but you know we really question how that's actually going to be enforced. And also with home cultivation, are we going to have home inspections? Are people going to be licensed? Or, you know, you can really see that's going to be a, a free-for-all. Mm. And in, in terms of the quotas, yeah, that, that's a really good provision. But again, we question how feasible some of these things are going to be. So in the Legalisation and Control Bill, you'll be able to grow two plants without a licence with a maximum of four plants overall in a household. What do you guys both think of that restriction on personal use? Is it too much, too little? I don't hold a position on whether it's too much or too little um, because it depends on, and, and I think Chris touched on it earlier, the potency. How would you even monitor the potency of plants that people are growing in their household? Yeah, exactly, and that's what Chris had said around are they going to be doing house checks? And what we will know is, you know, I, I'm a resident of Mangere. Uh, the police helicopter is forever frequenting uh, the, the skies above my house every single night. <laughs> Potentially those communities that are already burdened by many other significant harms um, will potentially be subjected to more checking than uh, what we might see in our more affluent communities. Mm. And so we need to be really mindful that we have police discretion and ensuring that the discretion that they use is without bias, is without judgment and is from the outset some type of education program wrapped around and to support police when entering into homes, um, ensuring that it is done in the way in which we can support by way of a health approach if there is um, substance abuse or misuse um, within Mm. that whānau and community. Chris, are you aware of any increased police powers around the monitoring of growing marijuana in your own home? It's really unclear how they would enforce any of the rules around cannabis cultivation at home, given that I think the minister came out at one stage and said, well, we're not going to have these home inspections or anything like that, which, again, you know, that's fine. That's probably, you know, that, that's a good good way to go. So ideally, we want the people that are growing at home um, to appreciate the health risk mm. of cannabis even though it is legal for them to use it, but appreciate that there is some health risk and be aware of how it affects their children, that they're in their household and, um, you know, making sure supply is secure. And all that happens by the individual appreciating those. It's it's probably not going to happen by the police kicking in the door. You know, it's exactly what we don't want. Mm. And we've got to be, I think one of the other risks with all this is to make sure that we don't end up with more enforcement rather than less. Because we've now got all this regulation, we've still got the underage um, provisions, and you can may well getting the police even more enthusiastic about enforcement rather mm. than what you really want to do is take it mostly away from criminal justice and make it mostly a, mm. a health issue. Um, just going back to our age restrictions, from a medical point of view, what effects does cannabis actually have on? the young brain like why is that age restriction so important of the research we've got one of the clear public health messages that's come out is that early onset use so that's use in your very early adolescence so 12 to 14 year olds is really associated with high cannabis dependency and a whole lot of negative developmental outcomes so like education um, career um, and even IQ in terms of how your brain develops and those people are more likely to go on and use um, heavily and use daily and have a whole lot of problems later so the real focus of of reducing harm 
should be reducing their adolescent early onset use. You used the word dependency. I thought cannabis was not addictive. For a long time, people didn't talk much about cannabis dependency. But actually, as we learn a bit more about how legal markets have been rolling out and and have better survey data, probably about 20% of current users, so people that have used in the last year, would be defined using a validated scale as dependent. So the physical dependency is not what people might imagine, say with heroin and cocaine, but it still affects their lives in terms of, you know, they have trouble stopping or cutting down and they have a craving. And I think this is something people need to keep in mind that um, the um, perception of the health risks of cannabis is just way too unrealistically low. Mm. But I'm not trying to say, on the other hand, that it is a really harmful thing. So this is getting the balances really, really difficult in this debate. So best way to put it is it does have health risks, particularly if you're a daily or near daily user. Mm. Yeah, we can sort of tag that to dependence on alcohol and tobacco as well. And usually we're speaking about the same members, individuals or whanau. What we want to ensure through uh, whatever this may look like in October, now not September, is that, yeah, we strike the balance. It is a very uh, hard one to call because we have mm. our, um, you know, some nannies that have had to raise their grandchildren because of the incarceration rates of our Māori males uh, being picked up for low-level drug offences. And so we, when we're trying to strike that balance, we're striking it from uh, a place in which reduces harm from a health perspective, but also from a justice perspective. And that's something that has been really um, strong throughout the campaign of Health Not Handcuffs, the group led out by the New Zealand Drug Foundation that we have been um, working alongside, is to ensure that we are putting all the things in place, should it go to a yes um, in October, that is going to strike that balance. Um, mm. and, and if it's a no in October, then we will get the status quo. And what, what my concerns are around the status quo is that we have no control over the current market. Uh, We don't have a tax take that can support uh, more investment into health services, social services, um, and then research that can wrap around to ensure that we get it right. Mm. I'll go back to Chris's point around um, the not-for-profit sector and partnership with iwi. We've got some iwi that are very uh, strong in their position that it will be no. No for their iwi, they've seen too much harm. And so striking that balance around if there are rohe within Aotearoa that are an absolute no, how are we going to ensure that the protective mechanisms of iwi partnership exist how do we ensure that the government's going to be responsible to their treaty responsibilities and so yeah you don't know where we're going to go and and we've got to make sure that the execution of whatever it is that we land on is done in the right way yeah who will be responsible for having those conversations with iwi sila is um hapaite hauoro or the health collective that you're part of i mean are you guys in discussions with the government on uh, iwi and whānau Māori equity around this? Yep, so we were consulted as, as one of many parties that were consulted through the framework development and design. Um, where I think it fell short is, once again, a government organisation coming in and asking a couple of people their opinions and then off they go and, and do what they were going to mm. do anyway. One of the things that we had been really mindful of um, is the Cannabis Control Agency or whatever the flash word is for this group that will be pulled together if it is a yes uh, to ensure that things are done right and in, in the right way. 
what I want to know though, and it's, you know, devil's in the detail, is what are the control mechanisms that that group would have? Um, will there be an insured uh, response to Māori by Māori uh, membership and decision making? And so I think that would be uh, the right place because it's, you know, we can have the conversations right here, right now, and we already have been. We've been working um, to enact and enable both lots of information for our community so that they know going to the poll what they want to do. But at the end of that, it comes down to how much of the decision-making and authority is given to that group or the group of representatives that would act as the safeguard for all New Zealanders in that space. Mm. I mean, our government, and, and not just our current government, but many prior governments are quite good at consulting with iwi Māori and then ignoring mm. those recommendations. How do we push for that partnership the current legislation as it stands i don't think really is strong enough Mm. and i think that if we are going to go to that next stage there would need to be you know absolute partnership written black and white it wouldn't just be a consultation group because that's what we always know and see and have seen over many many years is that you know we we form the side group that has you know the the connections the understandings and uh the ways in which we can really get it right um and then the Fakaro was not taken on board and we, we stick with the mainstream um, approach and so I think that from the outset it needs to be um, true a true reflection of a partnership and not just tokenistic. Māori make up 41% of our cannabis related offences over the last five years and so we know that means that there are a lot of whānau Māori involved in the illegal growing and distribution of cannabis, which will, if this bill passes, will become a, a viable market for them. You've done a lot of research on the black market, Chris. Is it possible for those people who have been on the wrong side of the law all of this time to translate that into commercial success? And this is one of the clearest benefits of legalisation is in the criminal justice area. So so Maori are disproportionately targeted in drug enforcement and so are young men in general. And preventing them getting arrested and convictions can have really beneficial flow-on effects in terms of keeping them out of the criminal justice system. And, you know, they're really important, particularly for Māori. Um, And also keeping the black market out of Māori and deprived communities. So, you know, tinny houses that aren't in rich neighbourhoods, you know, a real drag on those neighbourhoods and also gangs to some extent. But also most of the drug market activity happens in those neighbourhoods. Um, and that contributes to disadvantage. An additional part of the social equity approach would be to um, first you could expunge all the convictions, which are, you know I think would be worth looking at. So people that have been you know, convicted when they're 18 year old, you know, 18 years old for like provision of cannabis or growing a few plants, I think you could really look at expunging those and taking away that conviction so they don't have to continually you know, talk about that when they go for a job or they want to go travelling or something like that. Mm. Um, And the other part of the challenge is, yeah, supporting um, community providers who are, you know, involved in the community like iwi and are going to use the money for some, you know, community-based stuff like sports, culture and arts. In terms of individual people, um, yeah, to some extent you can open it up for them to transition to the legal market. I'd put some caution over that because sometimes I think people think that this is going to be a really boutique industry that one person could come in and grow 10 plants and survive quite well in the market where, you know, if you look at the alcohol market and tobacco market, they're full of huge multinational companies 
who can produce those products at very low price. So if we look at overseas where they have had social equity, where they've tried to support um, affected communities to enter the market, the cannabis market, and also individuals, the problem for them is um, competing with these large commercial companies. Are there any big uh, commercial players that you're aware of um, that are already getting ready for the legalisation of cannabis? Oh, definitely. So, you know, a lot of these medicinal companies, cannabis companies, it's hard to see, given their level of investment they're putting into their production, that they're only interested in the medicinal market. So, so the medicinal market is going to be a pretty small part of the market, you know. Mm. Um, so I'm sure that in the long term, they've got their eye on um, the recreational market, which is going to be much bigger. There's huge multinational Canadian companies now who can also come in and, you know, they can grow their cannabis in, you know, developing countries for a very low cost and then just imported into New Zealand. So that's the real challenge in the long term is controlling that. Oh, I was aware that we we can't export any cannabis products, but will we be able to import cannabis products under this bill? Um, not at the moment, but the, the real danger here is over time that the, as the commercial, the domestic um, market gets developed, there's going to be continued pushback, and you can see that in alcohol. The reason why you can't get alcohol out of supermarkets is because there's this huge alcohol lobby that's always continually pressurising back. And as public health researchers, we're always up against that. And, you know, we're really small players in being able to compete against that. You know, when you go to an alcohol licensing tribunal, the industry turns up with six lawyers and you're just one person. And Mm. that's the kind of, you know, uneven playing field you end up with. Salah, do you think that this bill is foolproof in terms of keeping people safe from the the harmful effects of using cannabis? What we do know is that policy usually never is good enough for our people and that is the way in which that it is implemented. What we do and and the the 20-odd people that I have to try and uh, influence and change policy for the greater good of all of New Zealand and also specifically for Māori and Pacific communities is tiny in comparison to the multi-million dollar companies that these people have. And, you know, we have seen uh, instances where we've, been trying to make our points against uh, issues in, in alcohol and tobacco uh, and he's right like they turn up with lawyers you know they have just this infrastructure that no one can compete with especially in the small very small funded market of public health in New Zealand so I think that would be probably one of the biggest things um, if it is a yes is that we need to ensure that we don't allow um, big cannabis to come here. One thing I did want to go back to and I'm not too sure if it is um, written in there is around if someone had had a conviction from a cannabis related uh, offence is there going to be a barrier for them then becoming a distributor or a retailer and I'm not too sure Chris if if that is in there but I I wanted to think about uh, how we ensure that uh, those that might have already had an historic clashed with the law, that they would be enabled the opportunity to um, turn that into a business model. But what we also know is that, you know, for many, starting a small business is hard enough to Mm. do with investment. Mm. Um, So, you know, we've got to also level that up in regards to how do we have an equitable approach for small business uh, operation and um, setup. So at the moment, the bill has really um, made a big effort to make it clear that people who have previously had a conviction for cultivation or use 
won't be excluded from getting licensed. So that so that's not a criteria to exclude each or anyone. So we think that's really good, and I think you can see quite clearly that they've they've had that in mind, and they they don't want to exclude people. Um, but as you rightly say, you know it, it's not easy setting up a small business. So um, you know that that's going to take a, a lot of skills that that those people might not necessarily had so there's going to be need need to support in terms of business schools i guess we would much rather think it would be more viable if if you have a, a not-for-profit in a particular uh, jurisdiction who has almost a monopoly so they they're, they're sole licensed so it might be an iwi it might be an rsa type situation or it might be a community trust and with that monopoly it allows them to compete quite well and you know the criteria for their license would be that they're really connected with the community in real ways. So, you know, they might be supporting youth sport, they might be supporting cultural events, um, you know, um, other community development. Mm. Is there an opportunity for institutions like Massey University to offer education around starting small businesses in the cannabis sector? I think universities could offer a, a number of skills and expertise. The real risk for universities is what role do we want to play in this industry or can we ethically play in this industry? Um, I think with cannabis, it sounds a bit more benevolent, but if I said the same thing about tobacco, like we're going to you know, run courses for people to set up their own tobacco company, people would be you know, you know, clearly pretty concerned about that. And same with alcohol, if we said we're going to run a whole lot of courses to allow the set up their own breweries in in little towns <laughs> so you know I think there's got to be a lot of caution about how the universities engage with this cannabis industry because you know I think we're still thinking about this thing as one guy with t- his 10 plants and this boutique kind of thing whereas really we're dealing with you know in the next five or so years we're going to be dealing with companies as large as tobacco and alcohol companies so there's got to be a lot of care about, you know, what are going to be the, the the ethical guidelines about engagement. I want to be like clear about, I guess, what the risk of harm is. So we've talked about um, the effects on the young developing brain. If you are an adult over the age of 20 years, if you're consuming it um, in a way that's not smoking, um, so through uh, edibles or vaping, what are the actual health risks? People often ask, well, is it more or less harmful than alcohol, tobacco? I think you can't look at it because it's comparing apples and oranges. So the real important things about using all those substances is a number of things like frequency of use, what strength of those substances you're using, and something about you as a person. For cannabis, that's quite important. So even if you are over 20, but if, if you've got a history of mental illness, you're a very at-risk person or a history of schizophrenia, or you've already got an alcohol and drug dependency, you know, you're also one of those at-risk populations. But overall, I think that cannabis is probably, it's definitely in the ballpark of alcohol use, probably a little less than alcohol use, and definitely a lot less than tobacco. So I, I think it is, you know, as I said, I think it's viable to talk about legalising cannabis without a major worry about um, a huge increase in health risk. Mm. Most people, even, you know, even daily users, um, can use cannabis at that level and not have any problems. So like from a, a health research and advocacy point of view, do you agree that cannabis is as much a risk to health and mental health? 
what we are are 20 years behind um, where we need to be because there's a huge methamphetamine epidemic right here right now and has been here for Mm. quite some time and so this is uh, one step I think in addressing something that has been sort of swept under the carpets for quite some time what I do understand and what I don't want to see is that these products become normalized to our kids and that's what we've seen with alcohol and tobacco is that you know they're, they're inside the supermarkets you're the, the next to the, the bread and milk we need to really think about how we don't encourage intergenerational harms from um, wherever we land in October with this I think that there is still a lot more work that needs to be done in regards to consultation with those parties most affected, being Māori, Pacific, male, uh, youth, and those um, with mental health and addiction issues already pending with them. Mm. Um, I want to talk briefly about tax. So currently in the bill there will be a higher excise tax on higher potency products and then a levy on top of that. Um, and then that will be put towards harm reduction programs and drug education. Uh, do you think that's a good use of that tax? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, one of the areas that we struggle with immensely is having the right um, balance of resourcing to actually get out and get and make a difference to public. One thing that we, you know, again, this is a, a two-sided conversation because we know that tax... Um, significantly can impact the weekly budget for whānau who don't have much to stretch within the seven days anyway. Um, so we need to be really mindful of what is going to happen with uh, that that tax taken, um, how we really get it to where it needs to be. Because what we know with tobacco is that uh, there's a huge excise tax. It, it increases every year, although that stopped, the, um, you know, that was the final part of that cycle this year. And yet the tobacco control sector get a minuscule amount to actually try and tackle the beast of addiction. I would really agree with that. And the tax really has to be tied to prevention and treatment much more clearly than it is with um, alcohol, for example. So um, a high tax is, to us is, is, is really important because our experience with alcohol and tobacco is um, the most price sensitive people are young people and heavily dependent people because they spend most of their income on alcohol, tobacco. So the high price is the most effective lever you can pull in terms of reducing consumption and heavy consumption, particularly by young people. Is that verified? Because I feel like the high price of cigarettes these days, um, there's a lot of uh, people it hasn't prevented them from buying cigarettes. It's been fairly um, effective in terms of reducing use over time. Mm and also in terms of reducing youth use, so youth uptake of tobacco. I mean, there's always people that would, would are going to try and purchase at higher price, but the, the higher the price, the less likely you are going to see it as a viable behaviour. Mm. So we obviously hold the National Tobacco Advocacy Service, and so what we see, um, we came out from the outset when this... Um, the tax increases for tobacco were put into um, effect. We came in support, and the reason why is to try and uh, keep the price high so that we keep it out of the hands of our rangatahi and those that have not smoked before. What I really want to um, stress here is that it needs to be tied specifically to the prevention, education, and clinical services that are required for these people because what we currently see is it goes into the black hole and it never comes out the other side. So, you know, we need to make sure that it is used in the right way so that it is going to benefit those people and if we've got a not-for-profit approach potentially those that have that license for that that or that region 
region could also be delivering on the other side a social response to that as well. I think that there mm. is, you know, you could potentially do that. Whereas when when you're entering into a commercial uh, institute, they really probably don't give two about you know uh, your health and well-being. Whereas if you've got it placed in a space that actually cares about the people that are they're interacting with then there might be a better way in which we uh, can Mm. see the system working for our people. So just to summarise our conversation that we have had we are advocating for a not-for-profit system Yes. and that greater education around responsibility around use and buying. Prevention but also uh, for young people, provision of things for them to do other than alcohol and drugs. So mm. community, cultural, sport, to me, that's the best prevention. Kia ora. Salah, what do you think has been your sort of um, main message that you want to get across today? Well, I think that everyone needs to um, have the opportunity to weigh up both sides. Um, that's where we need to be really um, ensuring of sharing both pros and cons, what we think is, you know, the most positive parts of this, the most negative parts of that, and then giving uh, the mana motuhake to those people to make their own decision and make their own call based on their own values, what that means for them and their whanau. Kia ora. Tēnā kōrua to Salah and Chris, and to you for listening to this episode of Conversations That Count Ngā Kōrero Whaitake. Now, if you're looking for more information before you place your vote in October, check out Cannabis Convo, an online tool that's been designed to help voters get involved in the referendum. You can weigh up issues that are important to you, identify the approach that aligns with your values, and it also allows you to see how other people feel about the cannabis reform too. Cannabis Convo is brought to you by Massey University's Design and Democracy Project, Shaw and Fariki and Effect. Head to cannabisconvo.co.nz to check it out. Now, Stacey Morrison will be back for the next episode. Until then, hey, Kornada. You've been listening to Conversations That Count, Ngā Kōrero Whaitake, brought to you by Massey University and The Spin-Off. Hosted by me, Leonie Hayden, produced by Jane Yee and Matthew McCauley, with music by Grayson Gilmore. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.